This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your site for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Hello, Andrew. We're back, Monica. Best, longest vacation I've ever taken in my professional life. (laughs) (laughs) What were you doing the past couple weeks? Well, I did get to see a lot of movies, and by see, I mean rewatch with my family. I hope most of them were good ones. I count Frozen one of the highlights. Okay, okay. That was fun to see with my mom and my sister because of, uh, you know, subject matter. Thematically relevant. Well, speaking of Frozen and winter, this is episode number 77 of Cinema Fix, our special winter movie wrap-up edition. And I'm sure our listeners, our, our regular listeners may have noticed that it's been around a month since we last released an episode. Uh, we apologize for that. The holidays got pretty crazy. Uh, Monica, you were spending time with your family. I was down at the beach for a while. Yeah, you don't need to brag about that southern stuff, all right? <laughs> well, we, we there were the holidays that we had to deal with, and then ever since the holidays finished, we've had trouble getting our schedules back on track. Yeah. But we uh, we, we finally think we've, uh, we've we found time to record, and uh, there have been a lot of really interesting movies that have come out over the past month. Uh, this we're, We are now full in... Oscar season. Uh, it's lots of Oscar buzz and Oscar talk going around. So we decided instead of focusing on one movie this week, uh, we're going to briefly cover a lot of different all films the movies. that have come out over the past <laughs> couple months. Yes, all the movies ever. Just about. These discussions are going to be entirely spoiler-free. So if you were hoping for a more in-depth uh, spoiler-filled discussion on any of these titles, we apologize. We just, we just don't really have time to do that. Uh, we're going to try to only spend a few minutes on each film. And as always, you can check the show notes in iTunes or at filmgeekradio.com for the time codes on when we discuss each movie. Uh, so real quick, here's the, uh, the schedule for what we're going to talk about today. We're going to discuss Anchorman 2, Her, American Hustle, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Saving Mr. Banks, 47 Ronin, Paranormal Activity, The Marked Ones, Lone Survivor, Inside Ewan Davis, August Osage County, uh, The Legend of Hercules, Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit, and The Wolf of Wall Street. It's a lot of movies, so we're going to try and, and move as quickly as possible. Let's dive right into things uh, by, by talking about the movie we were supposed to do a full episode on, but... Again, we got sidetracked, and we just didn't have time to do it. Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues. Monica, what did you think of this film? Should have been The Legend Repeated. It was <laughs> lots of retread, which is great when you, you know, go with friends and you ha- enjoy it in a crowd and you remember, you know, a lot of the fun stuff that happened in the first movie. But in terms of originality and what I would have wished the char- they'd done with the characters, I didn't really get to see any of that. In terms of real, any sort of development, I understand it's a comedy, but can we can we move it along? You don't have to hit the same plot points and beats as the first one. And I mean, if your biggest change up is the order of the plot, you really haven't done that much. Well, I, I get the impression you were not a fan of the movie. I was. I had fun. 
But again, like I really like the first one because it was it was something very original and was just so off the wall and uh, you know and it was an oddity. Um, and then this one was kind of just a repeat of that. So I still had fun, but it wasn't as great as that first time. Like when you find a really great restaurant and you want to recommend it to all your friends, and then when you go again, it's kind of like, yeah, all right, it, it's good. It's you know, all right, you already know what to expect. I agree with you to a certain extent. Uh, I wasn't a huge fan of the first Anchorman film the first time I saw it, ah. but I've grown to love it over time. It, it just gets better with every repeat viewing. Your old age is softening you. Maybe, maybe. I, I'm curious to see if that's the case with Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues, though, because there are parts of this movie that I found really, really hilarious, and then there were long sections where it just seemed to drag, and the laughs really were not coming. I don't think it was as funny as, as Adam McKay and co. seemed to think it was. And it's also 20 to 30 minutes longer than the first film, and I think that is a big problem. I think if this if they had just cut some stuff out, cut some of the stuff that happens in the uh, in, in the second act, yeah, cut, agree. cut all that out, trim the fat, I think it would have flowed a lot better. I don't understand why a comedy needs to be two hours long. What was the runtime on Anchorman Two? It's it's just around two hours, I believe. Yeah, it, it just it feels like you're stretching it. Yeah, and I you know that would be fine if it was funny the whole way through, but it's really not. There are yeah. there are just little bits and gags that seem entirely random and kind of surreal and don't really go anywhere, and. That's not necessarily bad. That, that's sort of what Adam McKay always does to a certain extent. But at least in the first Anchorman, it felt like there was some sort of through line to mm -hmm. which everything connected, even when it went off on crazy random tangents at times. It seemed like it, it, it always was connected to some core storyline in a major way. And there are large chunks of this film that don't really feel connected to anything at all. Agreed. So, yeah, I'd say overall, I mean, it's fun, it's enjoyable. If you were a fan of the first film, I'd say see it, but definitely don't expect it to live up to that first movie. Mm -hmm. But uh, moving on to our next film, I haven't gotten a chance to see this yet, Monica. I'm hoping to see this uh, within the next couple of days, and that is the movie Her, which is getting a lot of buzz. Uh, it stars Joaquin Phoenix as a man in the not-so-distant future who falls in love with his operating system, voiced by Scarlett Johansson. What did you think of this movie? You, you've you seen it, so is, is, is it worth the hype? Um, I definitely think so. I think it has a lot of interesting things to say about how we've incorporated technology so into our lives that it's like it's a not so much of a distant jump that we could form a relationship with it. Um, there's other characters that form friendships with it. And in Joaquin Phoenix's character's case, he goes a bit farther and forms an actual relationship with the sort of Siri hybrid operating system box back to him. And I actually really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the chemistry, even though uh, Scarlett Johansson and off screen the whole time, like the whole movie, and just the the different problems that arises with it, and sort of like the social stigma, but then later the acceptance of, oh yeah, this friend in my pocket that I have here, it's just no big deal. Like he, at one point, he goes out on a double mm -hmm. date, and it's at first it's a little awkward, but then everyone kind of you know gets into the swing of it and like jokes with the phone and stuff like that. It's perfectly normal. And I think um, just in terms of the changes we've seen culturally in the past 20 years, you know, how much we've incorporated cell phones and the fact that we have to have a 
conversation to or an agreement to not have cell phones at the dinner table. That sort of thing is reflected into that. But um, I did read an interesting piece which argued that the character of Scarlett Johansson, her, is kind of like a manic pixie dream phone in that she is so kept and perfect and bound but is so distant and it doesn't feel real. But then it's sort of the thing where it's like, but yeah, she's a phone. So mm -hmm. she's built upon the idealism of her user. And then that's how her operating system sort of fits to him. So I don't think that's a really fair assessment to just throw it all out the window because, oh, she's too perfect or she, you know, matches him too well. Because eventually, you know, she starts developing her own personality and quirks separate from him. Okay, so you're saying she goes from being the perfect woman to a not-so-perfect woman? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Is the perfect woman still a handheld device? Because then we have to really, we really have to talk about being objectified. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you were talking about, oh, and she's there to meet his every need, and I'm thinking, hmm, I can see how that would be appealing to a lot well, of Well, yeah, people. That, that was a big, you know, sort of upset. Like, people started uh, bringing up Lars and the real girl in terms of the comparison. It's a, oh, it's a projecting right, yeah. of a fantasy, but here we have the object itself sort of developing a personality um, separate from the user. So I think there's a little bit more nuanced pushback there. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing the film. Uh, it sounds like you really liked it and you'd recommend it. I would. Definitely cute. I'm not exactly sure if uh, everyone will fall in love with her, but I definitely enjoyed more of the cultural side of changes and all that stuff. All right. Well, moving on, uh, the next movie we're going to talk about briefly is American Hustle. This is uh, David O. Russell's film. It's a period piece set in the uh, late 70s, early 80s about the whole uh, abscam scandal. And it's basically about a bunch of con artists trying to con a bunch of uh, corrupt politicians and mobsters. Uh, and you've got Christian Bale, Bradley Cooper, Amy Adams, Jennifer Lawrence, all wearing crazy costumes and, and hairstyles. So many curls. Yes, yes. What did you think of this film, Monica? It's getting a lot of awards buzz. Do the hustle. I think it's highly overrated. I did not like this. I thought it was... As fake as polyester, man. <laughs> I was not vibing or jiving <laughs> to this at all. I thought everyone was acting at like 12 levels too high. Everyone was screaming at each other. Um, I like a quote that a friend of mine said that it's just a bunch of kids in animal costumes. They're just running around on stage and they're just screaming. I think that's what David O. Russell thinks that what that's what's passing for acting now. And I'm just, I'm not enthused. I'm not entertained. I was bored because it's kind of like watching someone scream for so long. You kind of just get used to it. Well, all right. When is this going to end? I just, I did, I saw where it was going. I, I wasn't really intrigued at all by the mystery or anything. And to be fair, it kind of felt like Goodfellas. He was trying to do a Goodfellas tribute. And to be honest, we had the director of Goodfellas release a way much better product or film a few weeks later. Well, it's funny you say that, Monica, because I actually did a double feature and saw this right after seeing The Wolf of Wall Street. How did that go? Maybe that's why I kind of agree with you and I didn't respond very well 
to, to to the film. I saw them weeks apart. I can I can attest to the fact that there is a quality difference here. Well, also after three hours of debauchery in the hands of Martin Scorsese, I was a little exhausted <laughs> going into uh, American Hustle. Yeah, I could see so, that. <laughs> so that may have influenced my opinion a little bit. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you slightly, Monica. I actually really liked the performances in this movie. I think the actors are all are all doing great work, uh, especially Jennifer Lawrence. I thought she gives a really fantastic performance, and her character is by far the most interesting character in the movie. I've never seen her turn in a bad performance. I don't think this role was for her. I always kind of, the way that they talked about her, like, being all screechy and, you know, like, needy and all that stuff, I almost imagine, like, an older woman like, then competing with Amy Adams, because it's so... It's a weird fantasy that those two girls, Amy Adams and Jennifer Lawrence, would have to face off with each other with this schlubby-looking Christian Bale. Sure. Why not? <laughs> I thought that she was the most well-written character in the sense that she actually seemed to have a little bit of nuance to her. It seemed like th- 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 there were definitely some conflicts between how she viewed herself versus how she wanted the rest of the world mm-hmm. to view her. And overall, I just found myself wishing that the movie focused more on her character. But unfortunately, no, it's it's all about these other people and, and, and everything that they're trying to do uh, with this whole uh, – with, with conning these politicians. And it's, it's not a, a bad movie or a terribly uninteresting one. At the end of the day, I just found myself wondering what was the point. What was David O. Russell really trying to say? Was he trying to make some commentary about America and how we're all hustlers and we're all con artists to a certain extent? And it was just very hard for me to get a sense of what the point was. And I think if we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I I think you can come out of Wolf of Wall Street and you you fully understand Martin Scorsese has a point of view. Every decision in that movie is based on him having something very specific he's trying to communicate. And I didn't get that at all from American Hustle. It was just like, oh, look, there's some actors I like doing stuff for two hours. I will give a shout out to the supporting cast because Jeremy Renner is not getting talked about half as nearly as much as he should be. Um, I thought he did a stupendous job job with that pompadour of his. And um, Louis C.K., that was a pleasant surprise, and I wish he was in more of a movie. Oh, Louis C.K., I love the man. I think he was tremendously miscast in, in this movie. It, it's hard not to look at him and just go, oh, that's Louis C.K. And, I, yeah, I just it, he, he did not feel right for the role to me. But maybe that's just because so much of this film just felt like famous people that were supposed to recognize mm. doing stuff. I also wanted to... Not give a plus shout out to uh, more wag of the finger uh, to the editing because I thought that was kind of atrocious, especially that one cut scene where they have Amy Adams screaming on a toilet. There were a lot of what the f- moments. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we seeing this? Yeah, you know, I actually liked Silver Linings Playbook. I enjoyed nope. that film, but there was uh, there was nothing here that either really got me excited or was particularly fun or that was interesting on an intellectual level. So I'm not sure that I could recommend this film. I I didn't care about any of the characters. Like, I didn't want to see anyone's storyline get resolved. Yeah. Pass. 
All right. Well, you saw The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which I've heard mixed things about. I've heard some people say it's really awful and completely shallow and 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 just a vanity project almost and i've heard other people say that it's really fantastic people should be talking about it more so what side do you come down on with the secret life of walter mitty whoa fantastic is a really strong praise there a little bit more on the downer side i know i'm seeming like a little bit more of a downer right now but um I don't think Ben Stiller is a bad director. I just thought the way that he handled the story was so not great. And it's sponsored by so many different companies that it feels really intrusive into the actual story. Um, you have almost ads by Papa John's, by Life Magazine, freaking Cinema Bun, and eHarmony is like a huge plot point in the movie. I was just a little overwhelmed by the amount of commercials I had to sit through to watch a movie in a movie theater. Well, just so so our listeners know, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, it's based on a very, very famous short story. Mm-hmm. This version is about a photographer, I believe, who works at a magazine. He, um, he takes in, like, the photographer's raw negatives and he formats them and puts them into the magazine. So, like, a photo editor. Okay, okay. Right. And so he just kind of works this office job and he has this fantasy life that he retreats to where he daydreams a lot, or at least that's the impression I get from the from the trailers and the reviews. C- correct. He daydreams a lot, so he just ends up on these weird tangents, and it's like almost whatever he sees or whenever he just kind of zones out, he imagines him like saving a dog from a burning building or being an adventure in the Arctic or whatnot. And then finally, this negative goes missing, and he has to go find it, and he has to go to all these far and away countries, so then that's when like the daydreaming sort of stops and the real adventure begins. It kind of has too much of a message to push on you, sponsored by these corporate sponsors. And I think it actually really waters down what he wanted to say. And interestingly enough, I tracked down the original. Uh, Turner Classic Movies has been playing it for the past couple weeks and had it on their Watch TCM app. The version with Danny Kay has a sort of little bit of variation with it, but then in it plays a lot more with the daydreaming where here we leave the daydreaming about halfway through the movie when he starts going off on adventures. So I don't know if that helped or hindered the movie. I just, it's not a bad looking movie and my, my family really enjoyed it. This was one of the movies I got dragged to a second time and I wasn't too sore about it. But at the same time, it's not like something I want to revisit. I don't feel like it's enriching and it's nothing really new. It's just kind of like, oh, it's nice. Thank you for this fruitcake gift, Ben Stiller. (laughs) This movie is a fruitcake. I'll serve it to my guests when they come over and surprise me. Live your life to the fullest. This message brought to you by Papa John's. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, uh, the next movie I, I want to have you talk about, another film I haven't seen, because quite honestly, based on what I've read about it, it sounds like the kind of movie that would just make me really, really angry and full of rage. Saving Mr. Banks. Yeah, speaking of corporate sponsors. <laughs> yes, this is a Disney film about the Walt Disney production of Mary Poppins and how Walt Disney uh, managed to secure the rights from uh, the author of the original Mary Poppins book. Mm-hmm. Something he tried for for 19 years. Is this movie any good? 
Oh, man, you don't know how hard this was for me. I live 40, I, well, back in Florida, I live 45 minutes away from Orlando. I went to Disney World over my break. I always go to Disney World. I once auditioned to be in the Disney parade and all the sorts of crazy stuff. Like, I used to have an annual pass. I am a Disney loyalist and apologist like there's no other. And I had to sit and watch this movie and kind of be horrified. <laughs> because it is... It is inexcusably so bleached and cleansed for what the public image it's trying to put out that it really hurts. I thought there might have been a good movie there. I really do. But they didn't make it. What instead they did was they tried to sort of pathologize why P.L. Travers, the author of Mary Poppins, didn't want to give her rights away. So they go back into her life story and how she had a troubled childhood and how she has daddy issues and her dad died young and all this other, you know, terrible stuff that happened in her life. And then sort of explain that to why she's like a cold-hearted bitch to Disney. You know, the fatherly figure of, of Disney World and Disneyland and the Disney company who wants every one of his company men to call him by his first name. And everyone's is nice and sweet to each other because it's sunny California. I really thought that if they just kept it focused on the Mary Poppins story and maybe the trouble production that did happen, it would have been much more focused and it would have been much less creepy, I guess, in how much sanitization they had to do. Because they also cleaned up P.L. Travers' life story a lot. Right. From what from what I've read, it basically, it just outright lies about right, yeah. how P.L. Travers felt about the adaptation. Yeah. Not a documentary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I Like, I've read that apparently she actually hated the film version of Mary Poppins and what Disney ultimately did to her work, mm -hmm. but that doesn't come across at all in the film. They make it look like this adaptation was absolutely wonderful and she approved it. That closing scene is flat out wrong, where she kind of, like, tearfully okay. accepts and, like, hug, you know... Thanks, Disney, for everything or whatever. Uh, the one thing they did keep was the fact that Disney shut her out of her own world premiere and she crashed it. Oh, yeah. wow. Now, that was real. That was the one thing. Like, that relationship was so bitter and angry and hateful. Like, that would have been much more dramatic than just, oh, we'll get along after all. Zippity doo dah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, the heart. The hurtful thing for me is um, Emma Thompson is great as P.L. Travers. I think she did a wonderful job with the role that she was given, even if it almost comes across a little shrewish and, you know, like a trope. But um, Tom Hanks does not look like Walt Disney. But damn, Tom Hanks knows how to sell a father figure like no other man I've ever seen. He's Tom Hanks. The man can do no wrong. The man can do no wrong. And that's why it was like messing with my mind. Because when I was watching <laughs> this, I'm like, I know this is not how this goes. Why do I feel bad for him? <laughs> Stop making puppy dog eyes at me, Tom Hanks. <laughs> it is impossible to feel bad about any Tom Hanks character. I, I'm convinced the man is just too likable. I know. Ugh. Okay. So, so you, you'd... Recommend that our listeners stay away from saving Unless Mr. Banks. you're a crazy Disney person like I am or are really intrigued by Disney history and you can, you know, sit there and you already kind of know and call the bullshit, I say don't misinform yourself because it paints a really rosy picture okay. of every party involved and I, that's just too weird for me. <laughs> 
So you're saying maybe our listeners should do a double feature of Saving Mr. Banks and Escape from Tomorrow? Mm, that would be interesting. <laughs> Get like the pro-Disney propaganda and then the anti-Disney propaganda together. That is quite a double feature. Preferably to be had with alcohol, probably. All right. Well, uh, the next movie, I, I don't think you've seen this. Uh, I, I saw this movie. 47 Ronin, a film which completely flopped at the box office. It's, it's resulted in, I believe, a $175 million write-off. Oof. And one sad Keanu. Yes, this is the samurai film starring Keanu Reeves, based on a very, very famous uh, Japanese folk tale about a group of 47 dishonored samurai who avenge uh, their master. And it was directed by Carl Wrench. It's his feature debut. This is the guy who came out of commercials and had a lot of buzz around him a few years ago and i believe he was one of the original directors being considered for prometheus before ridley scott came back on board so he's apparently a very talented director you wouldn't really know it however from this film ouch this this it feels like a guy who maybe as i as i've said this is his first feature film it had like a 150 million dollar budget so universal took a huge risk on giving all this money to the to this newcomer it feels like he was maybe out of his depth and there were reports that were a lot of uh, behind the scenes production issues and the script kept changing and it just sounds like there were some Definite, there were definitely some creative differences between what he wanted to do versus what the studio wanted to do. The result is not awful. Like <laughs> I, I believe David Ehrlich at Film.com said that this is the second worst thing to happen to Japan in the past hundred years. Jesus. I think that's definitely uh, an overstatement. Come on, what about Godzilla, guy? <laughs> this is definitely not one of the worst movies of the year, but it's certainly not a great film. I think its worst crime is that it's it's kind of boring a lot of the time. There are some good things about it. I, I actually think that a lot of the visuals and the special effects are kind of cool. There are some really interesting ideas. It's trying to mesh real-life Japanese folklore with more fantasy elements. So you've got all of these real Japanese politics going on involving the samurai and the shoguns, but then you've also got really crazy magical things happening with like weird monsters and witches. Yeah, I saw a dragon at one point. I was kind of confused where that belonged in uh, feudal Japan. Yeah, yeah. Rinko Kikuchi plays a, a witch and she just choose the scenery she just eats it up and she's kind of wonderful to watch just because she looks like she's having a good time there's like monks with superpowers it, it's it's re a really weird interesting movie just in terms of how it's trying to mesh these different elements together it doesn't really work though and I found myself wishing that they had chosen one or the other, like either go completely historical with no fantasy elements or go just completely over-the-top magic and fantasy. Yeah, I don't think there's been enough like old-school Japanese mythology done or explored on the sci-fi channel, per se, like in just mainstream entertainment for the West. 
it feels like there's a good movie in there somewhere. Like the the ending to this movie, I was not familiar with the original folk tale, and I did not know how it ends. The ending to this movie uh-huh. is very different from what you would see in most Hollywood blockbusters, and it really kind of oh. caught me off guard. And it, it 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 seems like a very risky move. I just wish that the rest of the movie had earned that ending because it actually is a really, really uh, well done, interesting finale. So, so yeah, there are some good things about it, but overall it just doesn't really connect and, and flow together very well. Yeah, I knew when they did press screening, it was a uh, bad news bears. The next movie I want to talk about, I don't believe you saw this one either. It's Paranormal Activity, The Marked Ones. Are you a fan of the Paranormal Activity movies, Monica? You know, I've been fortunate enough not to have to watch any of them so far. I actually really like the Paranormal Activity films. Really? I'm getting really tired of found footage that's not interesting anymore. I think that the Paranormal Activity films have done some interesting things with with found footage, and I would much rather see a Paranormal Activity film every year than a Saw film. I think that this is a much better annual horror franchise. I'll I'll jump on that bandwagon. The thing about Paranormal Activity, The Marked Ones, it's it's different from the other Paranormal Activity films, which a, a lot of the horror just revolved around, you know, supposedly real surveillance cameras that will just like stay on static shots for a long time and you're you're just waiting for like a door to slam or for there to be some loud noise or for something strange to happen mm-hmm. and it, it's a really interesting um style of suspense that i think we were we, we were kind of unused to seeing in mainstream horror films until this franchise came along. But Paranormal Activity, The Marked Ones, is a little bit different in that it's, it's a much more traditional found footage film. It's about uh, a, a Mexican-American teenager living in California who's using his dad's camcorder, just goofing around with his friends, and they end up getting into some strange shenanigans with the downstairs neighbor who may or may not be a witch. <laughs> and... They may or may not get cursed, and then strange things start happening. And overall, it's a it's it's not a bad movie. I actually I quite liked it. I think it's a, a pretty enjoyable film. It, it doesn't really do anything new, mm-hmm. but it does the found footage thing pretty well. And what's interesting to me about the Paranormal Activity series is how it constantly is redefining and expanding on this central mythology. There's a larger story being told that we're only getting glimpses of in these films. Uh, Something about a coven of witches and a plan of some sort, maybe some sort of demonic army that could be uh, amassing. And in that respect, the Paranormal Activity films remind me almost of a television show. Mm -hmm where we're getting one episode every year, and each episode feels very similar in some ways, but it's just it, it's just very gradually exploring this larger plot and this larger story. And I think that that's a really, really interesting format to see unfolding on the big screen. So overall, I'm a big fan of the series, and I will keep watching these movies. Uh, you know, a lot of people would tell you they've already run the franchise into the ground. I don't 
think that at all. I think there's a, a lot of life still left in this series. And I think audiences mostly agree with you because it did pretty decent, right? Yeah, yeah, they do. They do pretty well at the box office. Yeah, and this 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 latest film, the marked ones, in many ways doesn't even feel like a horror film. It almost feels like kind of a summation of the entire found footage genre. You've got references to the Blair Witch Project. You've got elements that seem like they're something out of Chronicle. Got some crazy science fiction stuff. Mm-hmm. It feels very much like the people behind this franchise, they know what's been done with the found footage subgenre, and they're trying to reference that so that they can move the genre into new places. And that really fascinates me. So I'm I'm still on board with the series. I think in terms of as far as mainstream horror films go, uh, this is one of the better series out there. So I'd recommend that if you're a fan of the Paranormal Activity films, definitely check out Par- Paranormal Activity: The Marked Ones, which uh, is being promoted as a spinoff to the official series. Paranormal Activity Five comes out later this year. It's it's not a spinoff. It's 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 really just as much of a direct sequel as any of the other films. So what is it going to be? Five point one, five point two. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I hate when they mess up numbers like that. Silly. Paranormal Activity 5, Order of the Phoenix. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, moving on, uh, another film that you saw that I haven't gotten to see yet, but that I've I've heard, again, some people rave about it and other people just say is the worst kind of cinema imaginable. That is Lone Survivor. What is this movie about, and is it any good? Do you hate America? Why haven't you seen this movie? (laughs) I have issues with how the actual filmmaking was done. I think this director was really sloppy. Um, It's not so much that he glorifies the violence, and I know a lot of people are holding on to the fact that, but the violence is real, that really happens. All right, but as a director, you should still be able to shoot straight while stuff is happening and not, you know, tumble around with your soldiers on the ground or whatever. So, so is this a war film? What is this about exactly? It is a war film. So, um, spoiler, there is a one guy that survives this <laughs> uh, harrowing mission where they were doing some sort of reconnaissance out on the mountainside of Afghanistan and they get spotted and then it's a, you know, fight for survival and only one guy gets out and it cost, I think... I can't remember right now, but it was something over around 20-ish lives or so. So it was one of the early instances of marine losses. And and now, is this directed by Peter Berg, who did Battleship? Oh, yes, it is. Ah, thank you for that. No wonder he can't shoot straight. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Battleship was kind of fun. You're on your own island there, man. But I also know that in interviews for Battleship... He came across as very much like pro-military, rah-rah America. Everyone should sign up and, and join the army. I mean, he. It, this feels so much more propaganda than it should be a tribute. A lot of people wanted this to be a tribute to the men who lost their lives on that mission. And I understand, but the first maybe five minutes of the film is basically a recruitment video. It's not any of the guys going through training or anything like that. It's just video of Marine training and how hard it is that these are manly men and all these things. And then at the very end, you get played like a funeral montage of each of the men that were lost on the mountain. And that must be, there's a whole song that goes on while this is happening. Maybe almost 10 minutes. 
slowly powerpointing wow. through each of the men who lost their lives. Oh, and quick side note, uh, one of the characters who was not white was completely written off. I just want to throw that out there. That was cool, guys. It smacks of jingoism, where... The director and creative team actually beefed up the numbers of the supposed Taliban out there. And when they did the shootout, it's like these poor four men on a mountain versus 200 men. When in real life, it was probably only 20 or 30. So little Hmm. things like that that make it seem more like this was a faceless horde of terrible brown people to go attack the, you know, the patriotic white Americans, and it's just, if you really want to give a tribute to your soldiers, I don't think racism's the way to go. Yeah, probably not. All right, so you're saying that this is basically a recruitment video pro-military propaganda, and people should avoid it? I think so. There are better ways to serve your country than giving some other rich guy money. Okay. (laughs) But Monica, if you don't see this film, you must hate the troops. (laughs) <laughs> I saw this movie, so there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, moving on to a, to a movie both of us have seen, Inside Lewin Davis, which has been getting a lot of, uh, of critical acclaim. Unfortunately, it's been largely ignored uh, in, in a lot of awards. It's what Lewin would have wanted. Yeah, it's kind of fitting, actually, (laughs) that the movie's being ignored. Uh, This is the new film from the Coen brothers. It's set in the 1960s, I believe, and it follows uh, Lewin Davis, who is a folk singer-songwriter trying to to, to become a successful musician. Down on his luck, he doesn't really have a place to live. He drifts from couch to couch. Uh, His his, uh, girlfriend or or pseudo-girlfriend is pregnant. He's just not really having a great life. Um, And it's a movie about failure and, and, and the struggle to follow your passions. Monica, did you like this film? I adored this film. Almost everything about this movie, the way the story was told, the acting in the movie, the cinematography. I wanted to stay in this world, even though it's dark and gloomy, and Lewin Davis himself is kind of an asshole. But it was so well made and so well crafted, and I could sit and watch it all day. It's interesting you say that. I, I have a feeling this is the kind of movie I would like more on a second viewing. Oh, no. Have you not done a second viewing then? I have not done a second (sighs) viewing. I've only seen it once. And as you mentioned, it is kind of dark and gloomy. The main character is very unlikable. It is a film all about failure. So it's not exactly an enjoyable watch. But it's so pretty. It, It is a gorgeously shot film. Like a lot of Coen Brothers films, though, it's one of those movies where, where when it was over, I was thinking about it and I was like, you know what? This is one of those movies I can appreciate on an intellectual level, but mm-hmm. I don't really enjoy it. And and the music is wonderful and the performances are great and there are occasionally uh, some some funny moments. It, it's, it's kind of a black comedy. Yeah. In a lot of ways, a really, really black comedy. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Um, it's a very interesting movie. I'm not quite sure how how much it's going to stick with me, mm. at least until I see it again. No, 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 no! Don't get me wrong. I don't think it's a bad film, and I, I would, I would still recommend that people see it. It's just, it, it, it's one of those films that I think 
I engaged with more on a mental level than on an emotional one. At least it's the cute animal movie of the year. Yes, there's a great cat. Several great cats. Several great cats. Yes. And I also want to say that uh, Adam Driver should win all the awards for his very small role. That movie is just getting no love. Once the Critics Awards were done, and even in the Critics Awards, it was coming up second best for a lot of Best Picture noms. Right. After 12 Years a Slave. Uh, Adam Driver is absolutely hilarious in his little small role here as a fellow folk singer. Yes. And like I said, the music is wonderful. I could probably listen to the soundtrack all day. But uh, yeah, it is one of those movies I'm going to have to think on it some more. I'm going to have to watch it a couple more times. I, I think it will probably grow richer with time. I mean, I also had fun like arguing about its meaning with other film critics about whether or not it was about the futility of um, artistic merit and how someone who does have it struggles against the people who sell out or how he'll never make it because someone else is going to you know, explode with the same angle. There's that. There was the question of, of whether or not is this what it would be like after one of the Coen brothers dies? You know, he would be artistically unsound and he would just be searching for a new voice after his partner dies and then I kind of took it as like an allegory to a sad song and how everything possible in the world goes wrong and the way that you see the movie is the way that he internalizes it and it makes him bitter right I mean there's a lot of stuff to discuss with this film it's like a folk song in movie form no I had so much fun with it (laughs) for for such a downer movie again it's, it's, it's one of those movies I think the discussion about the film in many ways is more exciting and interesting to me than watching the movie itself, at least just after an initial viewing. Uh, but yeah, there's there's been some great writing about the film. Uh, we, we ran a fantastic essay uh, called Sacrificing the Cat over at Movie Mezzanine that everyone should check out. Really, really great essay mm-hmm. interpreting, uh, interpreting the film and its different uh, religious connotations. I would recommend that people see it. Just don't expect a really heartfelt, happy, emotionally engaging movie, necessarily. Hmm. Moving on. August, Osage County, based on the play by Tracy Letts, starring Meryl Streep, Julia Roberts, and a ton of other people you recognize. I have not seen this film, uh, but it's it's gotten a couple Oscar nominations uh, for acting, I believe. What did you think of this movie? Again, screaming does not equal acting, <laughs> but whatever. I, I think I was kind of disappointed to see Tracy Letts play sort of watered down to so much melodrama. It kind of becomes like soap net for the masses after a while. Now, the, the film is basically just two and a half hours of, of a family gathering for the holidays or something and a family dinner. Well, no, it's not for the holidays. Um, so the patriarch of the family goes missing. So then all the family comes back home to sort of support the mom who's going through cancer and um, is having a hard time. But she's also kind of a hard person to live with. And that's Meryl Streep's character. Julia Roberts is sort of her bitter oldest daughter. Then there's the middle daughter, the one that stayed home uh, to take care of the folks. But then, you know, dad's run away, so there's a little bit of guilt on her part. And then there's the younger sister who's played by Juliette Lewis. Um, And she's sort of like run away to become her own person down in Miami. It's all these different issues and baggage that then they just come and bring into the house that's already tense. 
I not that some all of the de- the performances are bad. I just think it doesn't it lacks the sharp punch that we saw with Killer Joe, which was his movie that came out last year. Um, that was also based on a Tracy Let's Play. But it's also interesting to know. I think this is the first time that Tracy Letts adapted his own scream as his own play for the screen. No, I, I think he worked on the script for Killer Joe. Is Killer well. Joe as well? Okay, well then, never mind. I just felt like it just it wasn't as sharp. It wasn't as witty. It wasn't as I don't know meaningful. Is that a writing problem or a directing problem? It could be a directing problem, especially. Oh, there are certain scenes that I know did not take place on stage because it, it takes place on the great big outdoors. For instance, uh, Meryl Streep, for no reason unknown or whatever, she just takes out of uh, the car after they pull over to let her throw up or whatnot. She just takes off into the field, and then Julia Roberts runs out after her. But they go a good, like, not mile, but almost a mile. It seems like far as hell in this cornfield. And Julia Roberts can't run, and it just looks so silly and, like... (laughs) Like, this should be on the Hallmark Channel. I sh- Why am I here? <laughs> <laughs> That's your big takeaway from August Osage County. Julia Roberts can't run. It, it really was. <laughs> I just burst out laughing because after everyone being so tense and angry at each other, and then here's this goofy run with her arms, like, she just doesn't know how to use them properly when she runs. It can kind of look like flapping. It was odd. And then that happened. I, it was just, it just felt tedious after a while. Okay, so it sounds like you would not recommend that people see this film. You know, there's I know there's a demographic out there that loved it. My mother thought it was the best acting out there, so I know some people are going to enjoy it, but... But it's Meryl Streep. Who doesn't love the Streep? Meryl Streep is out Maryling Streep, man. It's almost too much. If she toned it back a lot, a little bit, even just a little bit, I think it would be much more poignant. You're saying if she had turned it up to... 11 instead of to 15. Ah, uh, yeah. Might actually, you know, be able to enjoy it. It just it seems so silly that at a point it becomes caricatures. And it's not to say that there aren't people like this or anything like that, but sustained for so long a period of time, it just, it seems like they only operate at one setting. And that's, you know, usually not people. People, you know, variate and fluctuate and whatnot. But whatever. Just my beef. All right. Well, uh, the next movie, uh, the, the next couple movies I'm going to talk about, I don't think you've seen either one. Uh, the first one is The Legend of Hercules. All yours. Yes. I saw this film. <laughs> <laughs> I was one of the few people who saw it. It's directed by Rennie Harlan, our good friend, Rennie Harlan, <laughs> the brilliant auteur behind such masterpieces as uh, Die Hard 2, Die Harder. He's he's directed this 300 knockoff, the story of Hercules. You know, it's set in ancient Greece. It's it's Hercules discovering that he's the son of Zeus, and he's trying to uh, bring an army together to overthrow his evil stepfather. This movie, I think, has like a 2% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Do you mean there's actually 2% of people that enjoyed it? <laughs> Yes, and and I'm not going to defend this film, Monica. It, it's it's not a good movie. I will say it is better than Ride Along, which I also saw Aww. recently. <laughs> um, the Legend of Hercules. It, yeah, it, it it's it's a bad movie, but there are moments of kind of fun B movie mm-hmm. camp. 
uh, the bad guy, the, the evil king, is played by Scott Adkins, who's been in a lot of really campy, straight-to-DVD movies, like uh, like Undisputed 2 and 3, and uh, most recently, Ninja Shadow of a Tear. I don't know if you've uh, anyone out there has seen uh, Ninja 2 Shadow <laughs> of a Tear, but... Uh, if you like really fun, trashy B-movies, you could do far worse. Uh, and, and Scott Adkins is just hamming it up as the bad guy, chewing the scenery, clearly having a blast, almost as like this uh, pseudo-Gerard Butler wannabe at times. The main problem with this film is the lead actor, Kellen Lutz, is basically just a block of wood. <laughs> Doesn't really have much personality. Uh, most of the performances in this film are not good, and I'm not quite sure if it's because of the actors or just because the script is so bland. There are a few interesting characters. You've got uh, Liam McIntyre, who's an Australian actor, I, I believe. He he starred in the uh, in the TV series Spartacus, so he's used to this sword and sandals genre, and he actually has a lot of screen presence. You can tell he's comfortable doing this kind of thing. I kind of wish he mm-hmm. had been the lead instead of Kellen Lutz. The movie just really seems, it's much more engaging whenever he's on screen. The thing is, it, the movie costs $70 million, and you can tell it feels like a movie that was meant to cost <laughs> twice that much. It, it's supposed to be this big period war epic and there are so many shots where Rennie Harlan is trying to do some interesting mm-hmm. technical things with the camera. He's trying to give you some cool 300-style slow-motion effects. And some of those shots, they look really good. They look mm-hmm. almost like paintings. But for whatever reason, I can only assume the budget, it seems like there's not a lot of people in this film. It seems like Greece is only comprised of like a couple dozen people. So Hercules and his army will encounter another army and it'll seem like half a dozen people maybe get into a fight. And there will be like these really crazy slow-mo shots that look really, really cool, but there's only like two two to three people in these shots. And it, it just feels very small at times when I think it's meant to feel big and yeah, the script is kind of bland. It's the kind of movie it, it I, I can I can see that they were trying. I, I don't want to write it off completely. It doesn't feel like they were just like writing it off and, and, and being lazy. They were trying to do something interesting. It just it just really didn't come together and it feels really bland. And I I can't recommend it. I can see why only two percent of critics liked it. But we should not take that to mean that there's only 2% of good movie. <laughs> okay. There's at least 30% of good oh. movie <laughs> in there. And that they took the lens cap off. They focused it. <laughs> right. And like I said, uh, Liam McIntyre is great. And Scott Adkins, wonderfully cheesy, wonderfully just, just, just hammy, steals every scene he's in, puts Scott Adkins in more movies, people. The guy just has really great charisma and screen presence. So yeah, that that's the Legend of Hercules. I wouldn't recommend it, but it is. <laughs> it is it January. Is. Yes, I also saw Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit. Ooh. Did you get a chance to see this? No, and I kept screwing up and confusing it with uh, Jack Reacher. So I apologize. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's okay. No, there this are is too not many a jacks <laughs> to Jack Reacher. I know. Yeah, yeah. I was like, is it because they changed the guy? They changed the guy's last name. Is this supposed to be like James Bond? But they like want to do something different. No, this is uh, based on the Tom Clancy character of Jack Ryan. He- he's been previously featured in four movies, Monica. I don't know if you've seen any of the other Jack Ryan movies, but he was played by Alec Baldwin in The Hunt for Red October. Uh, he was played by Harrison Ford in Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger. And he was played by Ben Affleck in the 2002 uh, reboot to the character, Some of All Fears. Have you seen any of those films? I would be terrible at this bingo. <laughs> I, didn't get I haven't seen a single one. Okay, okay. Well, they're not, they're actually not bad. No, some of them movies. I've actually heard is pretty good, and all of those actors are good. Yeah. So now they're trying to reboot this, uh, this character again. You've got Chris Pine playing Jack Ryan, who's a CIA operative. And this is the first Jack Ryan film not based on a Tom Clancy book. It's wholly original, uh, for, for the screen. And it's, it's okay. Mm. The first half in particular, I thought, works pretty well as a good action movie, as kind of a good spy movie. You, it's directed by Kenneth Branagh, who who I think actually does a pretty good job directing action. Um, and he also plays the villain. <laughs> He's clearly having a wonderful time good uh, for speaking him. in a Russian accent. So he has some good screen presence. Chris Pine, I think, plays the character fairly well. The big problem with Jack Ryan just as a character is based on what little I know of the books and and previous incarnations of Mm -hmm. him. He's just supposed to be a CIA analyst. He's not supposed to be a super spy. Field operative. He's just supposed to be a regular analyst who's a really smart guy. He knows a lot about economics, and he writes a lot of reports and does a lot of paperwork and occasionally finds himself in these crazy situations. Like what analysts usually do. (laughs) Yeah. The problem, I think, is that this movie, it feels almost like Casino Royale. In fact, there are several specific scenes that I think call back to Casino Mm. Royale. It almost feels like the American James Bond, in Mm -hmm. a way. Uh, One of the, the first kills that he has to do, he has to fight a guy and he's in a bathroom which reminded me of the opening scene of Casino Royale. The last line of the movie is Ryan, Jack Ryan, instead of Bond. Too hard, too hard. Yeah, there are, it feels like they're trying to present this as an all-American version of James Bond, where James Bond is the down and dirty, gruff, womanizing British secret agent. Jack Ryan's the all-American Boy Scout who he's all about monogamy and marriage. So he's, got, he's got his cute. fiance in this movie played by Kevin <laughs> Knightley. Yeah, he's all about he's all about serving his country. And Kevin and Costner at some point. Kevin Costner plays the guy who recruits him, his mentor. And the problem is the second half of this movie, it, it's great for action fans if you like action. It's it's like nonstop action it is fist fight after car chase <laughs> after explosion it is it is non-stop it, it kind of goes off the rails it, it's almost like it gives up on suspense and mystery and story entirely and it just turns jack ryan into mm. a superhero you know the action isn't bad but it does feel kind of standard is there a reason why they shot it in moscow is there like some new tax incentive because they also did the Die Hard five out there too i don't know what's what's going on with Russia. <laughs> We're going to try and make the Cold War happen again. <laughs> well, to be, to be fair, uh, Jack Ryan, the character, 
in the books and in some of the films, Russia was always kind of like the primary bad guy. Because they were done in the 80s, right? Yeah, yeah. Cold War was a thing. Now we're 30 years out and we're still hitting up the Cold War like it's a fresh new hot thing. Right. And I think the premise of the film is actually really interesting. It's kind of a, a thriller for the post-Wall Street crash era. It's basically mm. a movie in which the villain's big plan is just to crash the world economy. And the plan is if we crash the world economy in just the right way, Russia will be able to emerge on top out of the wreckage. Well, now that we kind of saw that it sort of made a happen. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's not such a bad idea, supervillains. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an it, it, it interesting plot in that it's not just, well, we have to blow up the world or whatever. It's it's economic terrorism as well. Wasn't uh, the Die Hard 4, uh, wasn't that like bring down the internet or something? Yeah, that was that was kind of similar. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, similar in, in certain ways. But I thought that that was certainly an interesting new angle to what can be kind of a rote and redundant genre. Mm. So there are some good ideas in there. I do think it kind of goes off the rails in the uh, in the second half, and it just makes Jack Ryan a, a superhero. Impossible white man. Yeah, basically. It, it, it kind of loses everything that makes the character and, and what I think made the, the, the first half of the film really interesting. So it, it's, it's a mixed bag. It's not the best Jack Ryan film. It's not the worst Jack Ryan film. I would be interested in seeing Chris Pine play the role Again, I, I think he does a pretty good job with the character. All right. But yeah, so, so that's what I thought of Jack Ryan. All right, the last film we're going to talk about in our holiday movie wrap-up is The Wolf of Wall Street. And I wanted to save this for last because of, of, of all the movies we've discussed, it's the film I most wish we had time to do a full episode on. Lots of things to discuss for the big movie. Yes, lots of things to talk about in this film. This is the new movie from Martin Scorsese. It's about uh, the, the real-life story of uh, Jordan Belfort, who was a Wall Street executive who made millions and millions of dollars just doing a lot of illegal, shady deals and basically just lived a life full of drugs and sex and debauchery and was a terrible person. And that's what this movie is about. And I really like this film. I really like this film. I think I had it either in my... I think it might have been my number two movie of the year. Well, it didn't make my top ten. It didn't or it did? Did not. It did not make my top Terrible. ten. Terrible. But of all the Best Picture nominees, Monica, this is the only one that made my top 20. <laughs> so... All right, you contrarian hipster, you... That's how good this year was for movies. That's true. Monica. That's true. I will not disagree with you there. It was an amazing year for movies, and I think this was just like the cherry on top. Yes. It, this is a film that the more I think about it, unlike you in Davis, where the more I think about it, I appreciate it, but I'm not quite sure I want to revisit it. This one, the more I think about it, the more I, I'm just kind of excited and like, wow, I, I, now that I am thinking about it, I can't believe that Martin Scorsese managed to make this movie in the way he made it. I know. Uh, I think it's a it's a pretty radical piece of, of, of cinema. Um, I can't believe this guy is in his 70s. I'm so impressed that it's a rated R. We, yeah, it's a very, very graphic film. It, it almost <laughs> got an NC-17. They had, to, uh, they had to edit it down so it didn't get an NC-17. And, and yeah, there's lots of drugs, lots of nudity. 
And it set a new record for F bombs. Yeah, it did set a new record for F bombs. <laughs> uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, I think, gives what could be the best performance of his career. He's absolutely phenomenal in this film. Agreed. Jonah Hill is is wonderful as a supporting role. I cracked up every time Jonah Hill was on screen. Just the way he talks, his, his mannerisms, and his dentures too. He had some weird fake teeth. Yeah, there's a moment in the early part of the film where it seems like he's channeling that same Jonah Hill energy that you would see in a lot of the stoner comedies <laughs> that he's been a mm-hmm. part of where he's just like gesturing to Leonardo DiCaprio to come join him. He's just like, come smoke crack with me, bro. Come smoke crack with me, bro. And it, it, for <laughs> yeah. some reason, the way he says it, it just it's, it's absolutely hilarious. And I was almost rolling on the floor <laughs> laughing. There's a lot of those moments for as dark as this movie is. Man, it goes off to very interesting tangents in ways that I thoroughly enjoy. Yes, this is a pitch black comedy. It is not a drama yeah. As as much as the marketing might lead you to believe, it is there. There are moments in this film that are just absolutely hysterical, um, and there's one scene in particular involving some physical comedy from Leonardo DiCaprio. That it, it's just it's one of the most incredible yes. scenes I, I saw all year. I hope that's what they use for their Oscar clip reel. Oh, I hope they don't. I don't want. Th- I don't want them to spoil it. They can't use the the second part of it, but just him opening the car door. I just want that one. <laughs> that's good enough. It's like the perfect tease. There's more. And, you know, I I think people could complain that, you know, the movie's three hours long. It could start to feel redundant after a while, just scene after scene of nonstop debauchery. And I think that's kind of the point. I think it's supposed to feel redundant. Yeah. The final shot in this movie blew me away. Yes. In many ways, I almost feel like the film is critiquing itself. It strikes me almost as questioning... Why is this movie being made? Why do people, why are we coming to see this film? Why are we enjoying some of what we see? I think it's also implicating us on how we let men like this run our country and how we admire these kind of men and we put them up on a pedestal. Like, yeah, it definitely flips the camera out on us. And I think freaking brilliant. This is, I think, one of the most radically anti-capitalist mainstream wide release films I've I've ever seen. It, it's really incredibly radical, just little things that Scorsese does. And it, it it's it's not just about Jordan Belfort and what a horrible person he is. It it's really about how we're all just like him in one way or another. And the way society is set up, we are basically molded to become like him in American capitalism and with the whole idea of the American dream. And it, it just really kind of bowled me over in, in that respect. So yeah, I would highly recommend people go see The Wolf of Wall Street at least once. I'm not sure I would recommend people see it a second time. And in fact, there's a part of me that feels like Martin Scorsese would not want you to see it a second <laughs> time. <laughs> He would want you to uh, to realize, to get the point that maybe, uh, you know, maybe you are just like him. Maybe you shouldn't be uh, enjoying some of what you enjoy when you watch this movie. And you should watch it and then never turn it on again. I did want to see it again, only in case, you know, I missed something or like just to go over. I mean, it's a whole lot of movie. So in that, in that sense, I wanted to go back and see it. But I actually couldn't convince anyone back in my hometown to go see it with me. So I ended up not getting to catch it again. 
Oh, right. And I, I think for, for really, for film buffs, I think there's a lot to parse out over multiple viewings. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately, kind of like some of the work of Michael Haneke, <laughs> uh, specifically Funny Games, I think this is a film that in, in, in some ways is very angry, and I think in some ways it is demanding action, and it is demanding that we we hold ourselves and our cinema, to a certain extent, to a higher standard. So I think it would be a mistake to see this movie and then just forget about it. I think it's a film that, that, that really wants you to think about it, to understand it, and then act on it. It's, it's an amazing movie. Agree. Yeah, and I, I really hope that uh, it gets some more attention come award season. I, I feel like a lot of people are going to be turned off by the whole idea of it and think, well, oh, it's just a movie about bad people doing bad things. And it's really a lot. Yeah, and more I think the backlash that has built up about whether or not movies should be ethically clear on whether or not they condemn or sympathize with their character i think sort of erases the fact that it's for us to decide right um like we have to be spoon-fed the morality play of the film well well, okay i agree the movies shouldn't spoon feed us the morality and maybe this is a little bit harsh monica i honestly do not understand how anybody could watch this movie and feel like Scorsese is glorifying this behavior or agrees with what he is depicting on screen. I, I think I think anybody with a basic level of cinema literacy and understanding of how movies work, anyone who pays attention to what Scorsese is doing here, I don't think there's any way you, you could come away from this film saying that he glorifies this behavior. This is pure assault and attack. No, I agree, but um, there has been a lot, a lot of people that did not get that message. That just makes me really sad for those people. I, I think it also brings to light the fact that we don't have any sort of like basic cinema literacy out. You know, it's not taught in our schools or anything like that. And if you don't study it in college, you know, how else are you going to come across this? When most right. of our movies, I think most American movies are pretty basic in that regard. They don't, you know, American audiences aren't used to having open-ended movies and that sort of thing. Right. And the whole idea of satire, I think, to a certain extent, is is lost yeah. on a lot of people, which is, which is kind of unfortunate. I think a lot of people are used to going to the movies. They want to escape. They want to get what the marketing promises them. Like the woman who sued the makers of Drive because she thought it was going to be like a racing movie. Right. To a, to a certain extent, people are used to Hollywood spoon-feeding them yeah. what they want. And Scorsese is not going to do that here. It You know, if, if you're one of those viewers who, who doesn't really think about their movies or, or you just want to escape, this is not <laughs> the film for you at all. Um, and, and if you, I, th- I think certain people could view the marketing for this movie and say, well, oh, that's what the movie is because that's how it's being yeah. marketed. But that's really not what this, this movie is at all. It, it's, it's the complete opposite of that. Uh, it's, an, it's a really, really smart film. 
yes, it's graphic. Yes, if you're if you're not used to seeing such graphic behavior and material on screen, maybe if, if that makes you uncomfortable, maybe you should avoid it. But if if you're up for that material, there's a lot to think about with this film. It was awesome. Y'all should see it. Yes, everyone should see it. I'm not sure I'd say it was awesome. It's a well-made <laughs> film. It makes you think... It's created a lot of debate. It's very dark and depressing when you stop to think about it. Yeah, but I also said Inside Lewin Davis was awesome, so... That's true. I'm on a roll with just being soul-crushingly dark. <laughs> you're you're going to be the uh, the quote monkey for the posters for this podcast. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Monica Castillo, Cinema Fix. Yeah. Freaking brilliant, I think, was what I said earlier. <laughs> Right next to Peter Travers. Put my name up. All right. Well, I think that'll wrap it up for this uh, winter movie wrap-up episode of Cinema Fix. We'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. January is kind of a dry month for movies, so I think next time we record, which will be in a, in, in a week or two, I think we're going to do our end-of-year awards episode. We're going to be looking Woo. back over 2013 in cinema and we're going to let you know what the best movies we saw were what gyms you may have missed uh, and a whole lot more so uh, be sure to tune in next time for that don't forget you can subscribe to us through itunes and stitcher so if you liked this episode please write us a review that would really help us out a lot in terms of getting the word out about the program you can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. Don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including The Thin Place and Detect This, our new weekly podcast all about the HBO series uh, True Detective. Monica, where can people find you online? People can find me online on Twitter and Tumblr at mcastimovies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I movies. They can also find my work reposted on the Boston Online Film Critics Association website at bufca.com. I'm Senior Editor of Movie Mezzanine. You can find my writing and reviews over at MovieMezzanine.com. And you can also find some of my TV criticism at Pathios.com on the blog Cinemeditations. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at WriterAndrew. And if you do follow me, be sure to send me a message, let me know you're a listener, and I'll follow you back so we can keep talking about the movies. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun this week getting high on cinema and not play leads. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!